Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Deconstructed. This is Ryan Grimm. Before we start the show today, I want to ask you all a favor. Right now, you can head over to theintercept.com slash give and donate to support The Intercept's reporting. That's theintercept.com slash give. Your donations are what allow us to do the kind of independent, investigative, accountability journalism the public relies on. Later on the show, we'll talk about a story The Intercept broke that exposed the shady financial dealing of Georgia Senator David Perdue, an investigation that is now shaking up a race that determines control of the Senate and the fate, for better or for worse, of the Biden administration's legislative agenda. This stuff is important, but it's expensive to do. Democracy depends on the public's right to know. That's why our journalism will never be hidden behind a paywall. The Intercept gives reporters the freedom and support to do the kind of deep investigations that just don't get done anywhere else. We're committed to bringing you voices and ideas you won't find elsewhere. All donations are welcome. Consider becoming a sustaining member at $5 or $10 a month. It may seem small, but it has a big impact over time. So pause this thing, head to theintercept.com slash give and donate now. I mean, if you feel like it, no pressure. That's theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, does make a difference. Now, if you want The Intercept to know that you're a deconstructed listener, there's a link in the show notes that you can give through. Either way, we appreciate that you're listening. Now, on to the show. I think I would encourage all Georgians to make it known that you will not vote at all until your vote is secure. If Kelly Loeffler wants your vote, if David Perdue wants your vote, they've got to earn it. They've got to demand publicly, Brian Kemp, call a special session of the Georgia legislature. And if they do not do it, if Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue do not do it, they have not earned your vote. Don't you give it to them. That was a recent rally in Georgia headlined by former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell and Republican heavyweight attorney Lynn Wood. But it's not the only blow to the GOP's chances in the upcoming Georgia Senate runoffs. The latest attacks from Ossoff target the timing of Senator Perdue's sales of more than a million dollars worth of stock from Atlanta-based Cardlytics, a financial company where Perdue was once a board member. In emails obtained by the New York Times, Cardlytics CEO at the time, Scott Grimes, emailed the senator on January 21st. David, I know you are about to do a call with David Evans. As an FYI, I have not told him about the upcoming changes. Senator Perdue responded... I don't know about a call with David or the changes you mentioned. The Cardlytics CEO emailed back the next morning. David, sorry, that email was not meant for you. Wrong, David. An email mix-up. 
But the next day, on January 23rd, financial disclosure forms show Purdue sold between one to five million in Cardlytic stock. Six weeks later, Cardlytic stock plummeted when the CEO announced he was stepping down, forecasting disappointing earnings. On March 18th, with Cardlytic stock at $29 a share, Financial disclosures show Purdue bought back between $100,000 to $250,000 worth of Cardlytics stock. Cardlytics is trading this week at around $120 a share. On Thursday, I added new reporting to this scandal, namely that David Purdue had previously lied and claimed that an independent outside advisor made his trades. But it's now clear he personally directed the sale after that email exchange with the CEO. I'm joined by Intercept correspondent George Cheedy, who's based in Atlanta and has been closely tracking these Senate races. You're going to be hearing a lot about Georgia the next two months. So today on the show, we thought we'd take a look back at the state's tumultuous history and how it ended up where it is today. George and I are going to run through the history of the state from Oglethorpe to Talmadge, from Tom Watson to FDR, from Jimmy Carter to Stacey Abrams. But first, George how is that Sydney Powell Linwood rally playing in the news down there? Oh my goodness! So for the most part, people like the the news, like the AJC and the television stations and whatnot, they're not really talking a whole lot about it. Where hmm. it's coming through at all is in social media, and in that case, it's really bifurcated. The Progressive people in Georgia are seeing this, and it's mockery, and conservatives are seeing this, and they're torn. Like, there's a real internal argument happening in social media between, frankly, how crazy do we want to be, (laughs) and whether or not we need to dismiss this stuff in order to move on and win the two competitive Senate races that are still on the table. What about David Perdue's stock trading scandal? He's been running this hilarious ad that refers to himself as totally exonerated, which is the least ringing endorsement you can give yourself in a, in a campaign ad. Yeah, it's very Trump-like. It is, it is. Perdue was cleared by the Bipartisan Senate Ethics Committee, the SEC and DOJ. Perdue was totally exonerated. John Ossoff, you just can't believe him. But is it getting much play? Is this resonating? Do pe- or do people just not care? And if he's corrupt, he's, he's our corrupt guy. Oh, no, he definitely, they, they care, but not enough. Mm-hmm. They care, but it's, a, it's pecking at the edges. And Purdue's ad, I might add, is running, but it's not the thing that's, you know, that's not the ads. Those are not the ads that people are paying any attention to. Because um, they're not running a lot of those ads. Like, they're out there in order to be out there. Most of Purdue's ad buy is about attacking John Ossoff as a Marxist radical and all the rest of it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's rare to see a positive advertisement at all from Purdue. And completely none, none from Loeffler. Loeffler hasn't, hmm. as far as I can tell, hasn't run a single positive ad ad at all in the entire cycle. (laughs) Um, I'm exaggerating, but only marginally. Like, the vast majority of the advertising has been attacks on Warnock. This is America. But will it still be if the radical left controls the Senate? Raphael Warnock called police thugs and gangsters, hosted a rally for communist dictator Fidel Castro. And the ad buys are 
$300 million, apparently, like of ad buys have been placed. Good Lord. For the cycle in Georgia. It's unreal. It's insane. And what about on the Democratic side? What are Warnock and Ossoff's doing? So it's a mix. Uh, uh, Ossoff has taken the attack role. Like they've, mm-hmm. the Ossoff and Warnock campaigns are, they're running as a joint campaign. Um, they're sharing staff. Uh, they're sharing resources. Um, Ossoff has taken the attack role here and he's pounding on the stock trades. Like, but his uh, ad mix and his public communication mix is a 50 50. Uh, it's a much more even split between attacking Purdue for being distant and not holding town halls and not talking to people and being some sort of corrupt avatar of corporate America and mm-hmm. his own sort of take on trying to get rural hospitals going and talking about pandemic relief. Um, mm-hmm. Warnock is almost exclusively positive, uh, mm-hmm. talking again about pandemic relief and about soul of the nation stuff. It's, it's a fascinating problem uh, as I'm looking at this. Um, both of them have to win, so they're being very tightly connected. Um, I think somebody got the memo and over on the Republican side that only one of them has to survive this. So they're taking a kind of a different tack, each of them. Right. I think what you said earlier about a lot of voters, you know, caring about produce corruption, but not quite caring enough really kind of flows out of Georgia history because it's, it's, uh, it's a place where political beliefs are held uh, so intensely and it's kind of it also has a lot of political corruption in its history. Right. So um, it's, it is even now like viewed as one of the more corrupt states in the United States. Um, let me tell you, as a close observer for the last 10 or 15 years, it's gotten better. It's mm-hmm. actually better now than it had been. But it took a lot of hard work. The people who care about the corruption issues, by and large, they're, they're a minority. You know, the things that motivate voters here are the things, are the big ticket uh, abortion and gay rights for the religious right, um, sort of a general anti, I want to say anti-black, but the sort of white racial resentment driving some part of that. And uh, this really old plantation class Mm -hmm. split where folks who've got money are looking to protect it from the big, bad, evil government. Those are the things that motivate the right, at right. least, in Georgia. Right, and so it's been that way for hundreds of years in, in some ways. And so t- tell us a little bit about James Oglethorpe and the founding of Georgia. And, and a lot of people might not know this, the really the only Southern free state, at least for a while, you know, founded as a free state. How did that happen? Right. So, like, there, first things first, if you walk into the, into the, the state house, like, in the, in the roads, in, at the, at the top of the stairs, like, in the most prominent place in Georgia, you will see a giant bust of James Mm -hmm. Oglethorpe. Um, and even now, he's a revered figure here. Uh, Georgia was founded as a state, uh, that would not have slavery in it. Right. And what's amazing is that while it was, Founded as a free state, and and Oglethorpe was a genuine humanitarian, was opposed to slavery. He's this Englishman who had been a kind of prison rights uh, advocate, uh, who 
saw the possibility of a colony in Georgia. It was as this classless society. He was going to bring over all these people who were in debtor prison and have, you know, turn them into artisans and farmers and, and create this kind of utopian society in Georgia. But the reason that the crown was, was okay with it at the time was not because they were humanitarians. They needed a buffer between South Carolina and Spanish Florida, because down in Spanish Florida, you had some Native American tribes, but you also had the Spaniards who, if uh, enslaved people could get from South Carolina down to Florida, if they would convert to Catholicism, they had their freedom. And then they would form them into kind of guerrilla armies and send them back up into South Carolina, where they would, in, where they would inspire slave revolts. And from, you know, the 1600s on, you had, you know, relentless slave revolts in the Caribbean, which people forget, you know, the Caribbean was part of Southern culture at the time. The Caribbean was really the kind of center of power and the thing that the English and the Spanish and the French were fighting over. And the mainland colonies were, were, were kind of a, a side project. But as those slave revolts picked up in the Caribbean, a lot of these planters fled and moved over to South Carolina. And so they were tired of uh, losing you know, their human property through Georgia down into Florida. So they tried to create this this whites only pro-slavery but free state. But the problem was they couldn't find white people because they wouldn't they wouldn't allow Catholics because they figured the Catholics were going to be linked with with Spain or France or or Ireland, which was, you know, they're all at war at this time. And they could and they couldn't even uh, you know, so they so they couldn't find enough people to uh, kind of work the land over there that who were white, and so they went and, like you said, uh, reverted very fairly quickly. What twenty years or so, right? They 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 legalize uh, slavery, and Oglethorpe is going back and forth, um, invading Saint Augustine, invading Florida, the Span the, you know Spanish are invading back, and you don't have. Um, you don't you don't really have today's Georgia take off until what after after the American Revolution. And what I found what what's what's fascinating is that Georgia was actually the place where the cotton gin was invented. Is that right? I believe so. Um, right, which then really explodes slavery through throughout the South, but not not throughout the whole state. It's not not like South Carolina where you know, it was dominated. So which, which parts of Georgia were the ones where slavery was prominent and where, where wasn't it? So it's interesting. There's still a belt that you can, you can start that belt in Eastern North Carolina. And that belt goes through the center and like just above the, the Southern line of uh, Georgia, mm -hmm. still primarily the African-American because of the legacy of slavery. Um, and that's important if you want to understand the history of, of Georgia and sort of Southern politics. One of my pet peeves is how uh, the, the Confederate revisionist romanticists like to claim all of the South as their own. Um, Appalachian, North Georgia, Ringgold, Georgia, Dalton, Georgia, when People were coming together just before the Civil War to say, are we going to secede or not? By and large, North Georgia told the plantation class from South mm -hmm. Georgia to go jump in a creek. They weren't having it. They didn't want to go. And 
as so much of Georgia politics is about, like there was an actual convention later in, you know, uh, you know, a few weeks later, and they got them all drunk, and then they said yes. But uh, even now, mm-hmm. like, yes, people were, like the delegates were bribed, they got them drunk, they delayed some of them, and they stole it. They stole it. That was secession. They stole secession in Georgia. Hmm. Right. The, uh, a lot of folks in the Probably north, plenty of bribes to go along with it. Uh, either chose not to fight in the north of Georgia, I might add. Like, a lot of folks in the north of Georgia either chose not to fight or fo- fought for the Union. Right. Even now, there's a Union County, Georgia. So, it's it's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Atlanta, I mean, they burned Atlanta to the ground. They burned most of this stuff to the ground. Um you started to see a few African-American mm-hmm. elected leaders. And so how did that uh, play out then in Reconstruction? I mean, Reconstruction was horrible. Don't get me wrong. Like, it was painful for everybody uh, except uh, black people for whom it was somewhat less painful. Um, and that mm-hmm. didn't last long. Eventually, guys in white sheets started taking control back town by town. Everything sort of went wrong. And... Uh, eventually, like, African-Americans were effectively re-enslaved um, to a point where people were getting, where people who were confronting that in government were being shot in duels. Right. And that, it starts in a way with, with 40 acres and a mule. Um, you know, Field Order 15, you know, so General Sherman, uh, you know, marches, you know, from Atlanta to the sea, burning, burning everything on the way, and as as he's marching, you know, hundreds and then and then thousands of people free themselves. You know, walk off of uh, plantations and are and are following him. He, uh, in in order to try to figure out what to uh, do with this this roving band of uh, former slaves, comes up with Field Order Fifteen. But that was something that, as I understand it, um, was was pushed for by uh, local black clergy and activists and organizers, kind of with the, the enslaved community, there they said, "Look," he said, "What do you want?" And, he's, and they said, "Well, what, what we want is land." And so he divvies up forty acres, you know, per per family, plus if they, uh, you know, if the, if they want a, a tired old mule that the Union Army is no longer using, they can have one of those, and you know, th- thriving thriving communities begin. Until Lincoln is assassinated and white supremacist Andrew Johnson comes in and and essentially uh, takes it all back. Now, I understand something similar happened on Sea Island, right, where where uh, local local black population there um, was was able to take over the land, but they formed militias and and fought off attempts um, to 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 retake that land. And I don't know about to this day, but held it for decades or. Maybe maybe more than a hundred years. Um, Fun fact: David Perdue lives on Sea Island. There you go. Yeah, he has like a multi-million dollar house there, right? Yes, he does. Nine thousand nine thousand square feet. And that's where Republicans hold their well, the American Enterprise Institute, I believe, holds a kind of an annual lavish retreat where something like thirty to sixty private planes land um, every every weekend when they mm-hmm. when they hold that, and so. You were saying, as a result of the the terror campaign, there's kind of a a, a re a re enslavement 
um, right. that that brings you eventually into the populist era first. You've got Tom Watson, who ends up later in his career uh, becoming this uh, pr- kind of proud white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but post-Reconstruction, in the kind of the 1880s and 1890s, Tom Watson leads this populist party, which is going to be a coalition of black and white laborers. And it starts to make serious inroads, particularly throughout the South. And he has this famous quote in one of the speeches he gave, you are kept apart that you may be separately fleeced of your earnings. You are made to hate each other because upon that hatred is rested the keystone of the arch of financial despotism, which enslaves you both. That is the race class narrative that the kind of uh, the more sophisticated left is pushing now, which says that, look, the elites are using race as a wedge to d- divide people who have common interests, to, to use race to div- divide the working class. So this is 150 years ago. This is Tom Watson pushing that. He makes uh, some substantial progress, but is eventually kind of co-opted by William Jennings Bryan. Right. And and so the Democratic Party kind of adopts the white element of that and and sheds the 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 black element of it. Why why do you think that that fell apart and what's the what's the legacy of that effort to create a multiracial populism in Georgia? I think part of that is was to one um it's the same political dynamic to some degree that exists still today a fear amongst modestly educated white people that their labor would be displaced by black people trying to overcome that is in, is unusually difficult um the uh because there was a lot of black labor around mm-hmm. um on top of that there was this sort of long-term resentment that still persists in politics today, you can still see pieces of it, of the cost of educating African-American children. Um, Mm -hmm. Newspaper editors, Eight Ways to Sunday, including Grady, would speak at length about the sacrifices that white people had made since the end of the war in order to educate black children. That so much public spending was being devoted toward the education of black children. And to some degree, they were arguing that this is a waste because black people are never going to be uh, fully educated, educatable, equal. They're just, it's not going to work. Like, and look at all this waste that we're doing. Um, but we're doing it mm-hmm. because we want to show our our good Christian character and our right. commitment to this idea. But no, it's not working, and we should abandon this. And black people need to be in their place be- because the alternative is this waste. Like that idea, like this idea of wasting energy and resources on black people, like that was mm-hmm. extremely difficult to overcome for folks who were still struggling to dig out of the problems associated with Reconstruction and their their loss of um, you know economic power, and it reared its head in the pandemic too, right? Did you see some of that play out? A little bit, yeah. Um, like, why are we spending all? Like, why should we even now, despite a pandemic? Well, mo- it's half of the people who are dying are black. 
Right. Like they, it's unstated, but it's there. Right. Um, the, uh, and why should I be spending my money in order to create a financial support for these people? So then, you know, you move into the, into the great depression and, and now the, the democratic party is becoming this, this interesting kind of white populist beast down South. Yep. So 1936, that's the first time that a, a majority of black voters around the country, uh, you know, vote for the for the Democratic Party, which is the party of the the Confederacy, and FDR wins something like eighty plus percent across across Georgia. Huge New Dealers down there. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they elect Richard Russell, who is a kind of a New Dealer but a white supremacist, and right. Eugene Talmadge, who was hostile right. to the New Deal. And his argument, as I understand it, was tracks with what you were saying earlier. He was worried that the New Deal, by raising wages and living standards for everyone, would undo the apartheid that uh, that that Georgia had implemented. That you had this kind of two tier system, where whites were making one wages and living in certain areas, blacks were making different wages, living in different areas. That's how he wanted it to stay. And if you improved everybody's lot. That put that whole project at risk, and these are people in the same party. So, yeah, who who is who is uh, who is Talmadge, and what's his legacy? So, like, I'm gonna back up for a second. Like, start start at the turn of the century. Like, you've had a white conservatives in the South had fomented a race riot in Atlanta because, like, through the newspapers, in particular Watsons, but others. Um, saying that black people have finally started to run amok. They're raping and attacking our white women, and we need to do something. Um, the new clan emerges. Uh, Stone Mountain starts getting carved. Um, Stone Mountain is a monument to the Confederacy in Georgia that I mm-hmm. might add is two miles from my house <laughs> and, um, and is the largest monument to the Confederacy in the United States. Um, it's still the most popular thing anybody visits in Georgia because it's a nice park, but there's a giant carving of Robert E. Lee and mm-hmm. some other folks, like on the side of a mountain. Um, and successively, right. like Democratic leaders, governors, senators, whatnot, like they oriented themselves toward this idea that white supremacy is the most important thing. Um, Eugene Talmadge, I would suggest, is the apotheosis of this political trend um a populist absolutely like in the vein of of donald trump a chicken in every pot populist like Mm -hmm. i want like the people of georgia to like to believe know that their government is doing what they want it to do the people of georgia among other things want them blacks kept in place um yeah, and he, along with Richard Russell, were uh, sort of instrumental in redefining this sense of um, rugged individualism, like this, like is very sort of like classic, like what we would think of as conservative view views, free markets and free ideas. You should be able to do well based on your own individual enterprise and the government's job is to make sure that you can that it can do that for you like with you as a partner the thing is he was like 
he got elected because he was able to tap very deeply into the mm -hmm. white supremacist, white resentment of the white working class of Georgia, who felt that their position was owed almost entirely to, well, it was not that their position was owed to like being superior to black people, but if there was any question of equality, that that would have been, that's enough. Like there's, there are no other issues mm -hmm. for a subset of Georgia voters, white Georgia voters than, um, am I better than the black guy who, who's competing for the same job that I'm competing with? Right. And after his landslide, when in 1936, Roosevelt starts to think that he has the power that he can maybe do something about this. And, you know, he comes at these Southern Dixiecrats uh, in the next midterm and just gets crushed. Yeah. Like they, they, they annihilate oh, him. So like, like, I think you, I think Talmadge won like two, three counties, maybe. You mean lost two or three counties? Like, yeah, he lost two or three counties. Like he won right. everywhere. Right. Like every, like, of course, you're, I mean, bearing in mind, you've got no black people voting, but still, Eugene Talmadge died in office. And there was a question about who, uh, he would governor elect. He died essentially in the lame duck period. Mm. The, and the state constitution didn't say who would become governor in the lame duck period because there wasn't, like, right. was it, would it be the lieutenant governor? Would the U.S. Constitution is silent on that too? Absolutely. Like it's <laughs> like, and we, well, we fixed it now, but like there was a significant because there was some question of political philosophical difference between the you know the lieutenant governor elect Melvin Thompson and Ellis Arnold, who was like the outgoing governor, because the legislature didn't necessarily get along entirely with Eugene Talmadge. At one point, like they were trying, the legislature, mm -hmm. they sorted this out by getting drunk because that's how they do things in Georgia. Like quite literally, like they had quorum <laughs> right. trouble uh -huh. in the legislature as they were trying to sort this out because there were too many people passed out in the ante rooms. This isn't like 1820. This is 1930, <laughs> of 1946. Like this isn't, like people are alive who saw this and remember it. <laughs> right. <laughs> the uh like there's this this sort of like backroom struggle for power. Like I, I think it's I think it informs to some degree the sort of craziness that we're looking at today in Georgia. Senators Purdue and Leffler issued a joint statement calling for the resignation of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger over alleged failures in the election process because he's unwilling to just set aside the election and decertify it and in order to assign delegates to Trump. There's a history here, like, of sort of backroom, double-dealing, like, right. whatever it takes to hold on to power, um, because there's a fundamental skepticism of democracy baked in because of all of the effort that had been made to ensure that African-American voters were never able to exercise political power again. Right, that this is how it's done in Georgia. This, there's, it's been done this way before, or then they're just trying to do it again. I think, now I want to say today that we've unwound a lot of that. I, I really think we do. But the DNA of that attitude is still baked into the political culture of Georgia. Like, we've overcome it because of massive demographic change 
and a, a tremendous increase in education. But politics are hereditary. Like, I still argue with Herman Talmadge's grandson on Facebook. Like, and Herman Talmadge's grandson both remembers all of this stuff and is an advocate for it. Like, it's like there's, it's still there. Like, and, and I think it's important that we talk through this stuff so that people who are new to Georgia and new to politics around here really get where all of this is coming from. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And so then you start to see... You know the realignment that began kind of in the in the 30s, or depending when you want to date it, where the the Republican Party all of a sudden, you know, starts to consider uh, Georgia to be potentially competitive. Uh, you know, Eisenhower makes a makes a bit of a bit of a run at it, but Nixon tries to bring it all home, following on following on uh, Goldwater's run mm-hmm. in 1964 with the the backing of Strom Thurmond, and Strom Thurmond becomes kind of what Richard Nixon's man in the South in, in 19, 1968, that he's, he's the validator. Yep. Yes, he's going to speak vaguely about race. He's going to talk about states' rights, but Strom, I'm Strom Thurmond, and trust me, I've spoken with Richard Nixon, and you, know, you, can, you can believe in him. Nixon's sort of attitude towards Georgia Southern racist stuff, and bear in mind, like, I've heard the tapes, like, yeah, Nixon was a racist, right. but he had a keen sort of political ear, like, and it's why I find it like difficult to just sort of write him off as a cranky crook. Um, the uh, successive governors, I'm coming back to Stone Mountain in part because it's sort of a marker for a lot of this stuff. Like, Stone Martin started getting carved, then it stopped getting carved, then there was this effort to raise money in order to start the carving again. And whenever they started doing stuff with Stone Mountain, it it was always tied like almost directly to, you know, sending a white supremacist message around here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, governor in the in the 50s um ran on a platform that yeah, we're going to, like, we're going to take the the Stone Mountain. Like, we're going to, like, the state's going to buy it from the private folks who own it to preserve mm-hmm. it forever so that somebody else doesn't try to destroy it. And, you know, he wins on that as part of his platform. And four years later, like, the state owns Stone Mountain. They They started carving it again just as the Civil Rights Act passed. 
and uh, sort of bringing it back to mm. Nixon. Um, Nixon was asked to be at the ceremony to open Stone Mountain and the monument properly. And Nixon didn't go because he knew what it would look like. He knew it would be sort of this overt symbol mm -hmm. of white supremacy with his, Too much. Yeah. So he sent Spiro Agnew in his place. Mm -hmm. um, Spiro Agnew was the one who sort of held up the federal flag, like saying, yes, this is a good thing. Not Nixon, because Nixon knew how to keep his hands clean most <laughs> of the time. Um, but yeah, like there's this Southern strategy, you know, emerged from recognizing that white racial resentment would like trumped a lot of other bread and butter uh, pocketbook considerations about what would be good for someone. That if you had enough racial resentment, you would vote in the direction that alleviated that, regardless of other considerations. Right. And it took a while to put that coalition together because you were asking essentially, you know, populist pro New Deal forces to team up with kind of Northeastern business anti New Deal interests. And so how do you, you know, how do you how do you square that circle? And so right, they 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 finally squared it around the idea of federal power, like, okay, we in the in the Northeast think that federal power is bad because it's gonna it's gonna tax us and it's gonna it's gonna create a robust uh, government. It's it's the thing that powers the New Deal. You in the South might be okay with that, but you don't really like a powerful federal government because it's going to bring about civil rights. It's gonna bring it's gonna bring about equality. It's gonna bring about uh, in integration. So we can agree that we both hate the federal government even if we hate them for for different reasons. So you pull that you pull that coalition together. Um but Jimmy Carter is a fascinating uh kind of uh punctuation mark in the middle of this move from, you know, from Nixon to Reagan and you know he he feels like a combination of uh the the kind of legacy of Talmadge and the legacy of of FDR. He's he's hostile to big government He's not as he's not he's not at all kind of overtly uh, what white supremacist, but he's coming from South Georgia. So, what, so the part the part of Georgia where he comes from, what are the racial politics there, and what is it that allows him uh, to kind of take the mantle of of both of those strains of the party? Carter is like the most fascinating, frustrating political figure that I think has emerged out of Georgia in since Talmadge. Mm -hmm. You start with this. He, like, he's an avatar of anti-corruption. That's part of the reason he won here in Georgia was because there was this long legacy of um, corruption mm -hmm. issues in Georgia and he was viewed as this person who could was above that because of his personal history, his military background, and the rest of it. Um, Plains was racially riven by the, you know, Supreme mm -hmm. Court decision in 1954, like the Brown versus Board of Education, like racial integration did not, was not, um, was not taken well in that part mm -hmm. of, of Georgia. Um, the, uh, you know, Carter um, was a, a Kennedy supporter 
he was a he was an integrationist um but he was for lack of a better word um nice nice isn't exactly the right word um he presented that in a way that was le- less threatening i suppose <laughs> to the average georgia voter than um you than others you might expect and um mm-hmm. you know the, the part of the problem here is like he was succeeding lester maddox like like just like that's the context lester maddox like axe handles like you can't have your black people come into my store lester maddox um right that's what he got famous for for yeah there's a store owner, store like, owner who who chased a black customer out with an with an axe handle and, and was proud of it. Georgians didn't want that image of their state to be the thing that was on the nightly news in the rest of the country anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, they looked for somebody that could send an entirely different message to the country, and that's where these are like Curry the Republican voters who were embarrassed by Trump's Twitter. Yeah. By, like, by they're like, we can't be the state of Lester Maddox. Um, there was a lot of other stuff going on. Like the airport had just started to get built. And it was a thing in Atlanta that was distinguishing Atlanta from places like Charlotte and Birmingham and Macon and uh, um, like other sort of. Atlanta was not the huge, great, amazing city in 1974 that it is today. Mm-hmm. Like Atlanta and Birmingham were equals economically. Atlanta and Georgia were able to sort out some of the racial issues in a way that states around them were not and were able to create this sort of Atlanta way of, of this coalition of you know, civil rights interests and business interests that would, were attempting to serve the interest of the community. Um, it basically to sidestep mm-hmm. this sort of the horrible history of racism in the state for the purposes of making everybody money. Um, <laughs> and I laugh because it works. Right. Like whatever else is going on, like people like, like appealing to people's mercenary interests is what got them past a lot of this stuff. Right. The, uh, I, I'm a fan of it. I, I advocate for it. You can't look at Jackson or Birmingham and compare them to Atlanta and say that it didn't work. You're, you're right about that. So there, that's Carter. Like, that's where he emerges from. Like, this sort of, we've got to stop being these people. He's a complicated guy, though. And I don't want to, like, there's like there's no way to have, a like, a five-minute conversation about Jimmy Carter without, like, I mean, there's a lot there. Right. And, but then, so the, the Democratic Party, and people might not realize this, Democratic Party clung to power in Georgia uh, much longer than it did in a lot of other places in in the rest of the south you know, how did when did they finally uh get get pushed out and how did they hang on for so long so uh, i think the last one started like the 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 straw that broke the camel's back was 2004 like it was actually that late and it was abortion mm-hmm. i'm not abortion uh gay uh gay marriage right uh, Carl rove's uh yep. weaponizing of of homophobia, that, that like, election, right? It, it, it had been drifting in that direction with suburban flight that started in the 80s. White people just started leaving the city of Atlanta en masse. Cobb County drew a line, like, at the county line saying, Atlanta, thou shalt not pass. 
Mm-hmm. People outside of Atlanta would not allow the train system to expand beyond it, like the core county areas, because they were afraid of black people escaping the confines mm-hmm. of the city and getting into the suburbs. But you still had conservative Democrats who were winning congressional races, like in North Georgia and South Georgia. Eventually, Nathan Deal, who was a congressman, Mm -hmm. switching parties from being Democrats to being Republican, like starting in the late 90s. The straw that broke the camel's back was the push for gay marriage, essentially. There was a constitutional Mm -hmm. amendment posed in 2004 to make gay marriage illegal in the in the state constitution it passed democrats were opposed to it but not all democrats they lost some black religious leaders mm-hmm. and that was enough to uh to lose the state everything flipped over at that point mm-hmm. they flipped 40 seats in 2004 give or take mm-hmm. um i mean it was a rout and Democrats haven't won a statewide seat in Georgia since. Like not a state, not Secretary of State, not Agriculture, not a Public Service Commissioner, nothing. There's like the party line vote flipped over permanently, or so everybody thought in 2004, and it's been like that until a month ago with Biden's win and potentially with the runoff races here. So how does Stacey Abrams uh, come onto the scene? So. Stacey Abrams, uh, and she's brilliant, and I can, like, the biography is, you know, we could talk about it, but she was recognized as the, a very strategically wise sort of political infighter, and the Democrats in the state legislature made her their minority party leader. Um, mm-hmm. Abrams ran for, by the way, she lives up the street from me. I'm, I know her. She's a friend. Hmm. Abrams ran for governor in 2018 and she fundamentally challenged one of the sort of the sitting beliefs like that people had been holding for throughout that 16 year period where they couldn't win a statewide seat that you have to win more than Mm -hmm. 30% of the white vote in Georgia as a Democrat in order to have a shot at winning a statewide seat that you have to win at least 30%. Jason Carter had Mm -hmm. run in 2014 for a Senate seat uh, against David Perdue. Um, And like I heard over and over from his campaign team, like we're going to get more than 30%. We're going to get more than 30%. They got 23% of the the white vote and they lost by seven Mm -hmm. points. So like the strategy has always been like trying to run a moderate Democrat that can win 30% or more of the white vote so that you can get to 50% plus one vote. You know, don't be completely in the tank for, you know, racial equality. Don't pander to the black vote. Like you're trying to like run a quote moderate unquote campaign. And Abrams Mm -hmm. said, hey, look, given the demographic changes and the fact that a lot of black people just don't bother to show up to vote because nobody's trying to get them. Like, we lose. Like, I'm going to try a different thing. I'm going to run a campaign where uh, I'm just going to try to get every black voter out there to show up. And I'm going to be who I am. And I may or may not get 30% of the white vote, but it's not going to matter because I'm going to have enough other voters. And I'm going to increase voter turnout enough where it's not going to matter. 
And she came within, I want to, what is it, 50,000 votes? Like, she came within a half a percent right. of, of beating Brian Kemp. And suddenly everybody woke up because it was the best showing a Democrat had had right. in 15 years. Um, and without the voter suppression and shenanigans, do you, like, do you think that there were enough shenanigans that, that her strategy, absent that, actually succeeds? Or did succeed? No, maybe. It's a question. Mm-hmm. Like I am not, and I, I took heat for this in, you know, in 2018 when she people were saying, "Oh, it got stolen from Stacey Abrams," and I'm like, you know, it was close. It was really, really close. Mm-hmm. Um, you had, you, you know, it turnout at least before November of this year. Turnout was extremely high. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to argue that there was massive voter suppression going on because turnout was right. as high as it was. Right. Um, you know, I think that there were like, I mean, you can nitpick some of the the strategic choices that Abrams made, um, but it really is nitpicking. Like, it, if it had gone the other way, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm about, uh, you know, a flyer talking about, you know, like targeting African-Americans. Like the, John Lewis went on television and was talking about, like, how Stacey Abrams is the legacy of the civil rights movement um, and how white, voter, and white voters sort of took that as an attack on their integrity. Some white voters, you know which ones. Hmm. Um, the, uh, but it's all, that's all small potatoes. It's small ball. It's like, it's, right. it's base hit politics that sort of you know blocking and tackling um the uh i i honestly don't i can't say that like there was some act of suppression that i can point to and say yeah that was that was worth a hundred thousand votes i i just haven't been willing to make that statement All right how did she do among the white vote uh she won i want to say 23 percent i'm i would mm-hmm. now that you say it i'm going to look it up she did not crack thir- 30% of the white vote. And I might add, neither did Biden. He came in just below. It was at like 28% or something like that. Interesting. Um, the uh, So that whole idea of like, there's a line and you've got to get above it in order to win. I think that's, I think that's done. I think that's blown away. So ha- what is your read on how this uh, runoff is, is, is looking at, at this point, and what is what are the what are the smart Stacey Abrams of the state saying about how how this looks? Because historically, Democrats haven't come out for these runoffs. Do you think this is going to be fit that historical pattern, or this is way different? It's so fewer people will come out to vote in, in January. Like that much is clear. Fewer people will vote. Like traditionally, you would see twenty five percent of the electorate show up for a runoff. Um, if there was anything, if it was, if it was a runoff, like of the public service and there's a public service commission runoff and the public service commission is very, very important mm-hmm. and nobody knows or cares about the public service commission. And if that's the only thing that was on the ballot, you would have turnout of 8%. You would expect 25%. I think 50% is mm-hmm. possible. I think it's plausible because it's all the marbles and because there's $300 million of ad buys going out there. Like people who choose not to vote in, in January are choosing not to vote in January. 
They're not just blowing it off. Um, but it's a jump ball. Like, there's no way to tell whether or not voter outreach and voter mobilization is going to be sufficient to get Democrats across the line, whether or not this sort of lingering resentment, like the sort of like the hostility and anger that Trump voters have, um, is actually is going to translate into like a screw you. I'm we're keeping this mm-hmm. vote that keeps Biden uh, keeps uh, Purdue and Loeffler in office. I am unwilling to hazard a guess. My sense of it is that it's still going to be relatively close, mm-hmm. like within two or three points up or down. But anybody who says that they can call it right now is lying. Oh, I just checked. CNN guest Abrams had a 25% of the white vote. Yep. Um, what, do you, what do you make of the absentee ballot requests so far, which seem to be trending uh, Republican? So mm, uh, I wouldn't read more into that. Like, So here's the thing. like, There are a lot of people who are Republicans are cross-voting now. Mm-hmm. Like, the Republican Party has lost some steam in mm-hmm. Georgia. Like Trumpism has, I'm just, I'm looking at some long-term Republican office holders who've been, who are voting Democrat hmm. because they're seeing how Purdue and Loeffler's defense of Trump speaks to a deeper malaise in, uh, in Georgia politics. And they are very unhappy that there is this internal squabble between the Kemp and the U.S. senators like where there are question, where people are questioning each other's integrity and where Trump is attacking Republican office holders who were respected before all of this. Yeah, you might see 900,000 absentee ballots being pulled and that a disproportionate number of them might be Republicans. But I, again, would not read more into that than it is. One thing is clear, hmm. like Democrats vote early. Um, and my sense of it is that they're, they remain distrustful of the mail and they're anticipating that with lower, a lower mm-hmm. turnout race, that trying to vote early by going to their local polling place in person and voting early, where they know that there won't be any questions whatsoever about whether or not their mm-hmm. vote's going to count because they'll stand there and show ID and it will get counted, um, like, I think that what, what I'm looking at is a shift of Democratic voters from absentee ballots to early in-person voting. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Um, who, who's Raphael Warnock? And does he have any chance, any chance at all, of peeling off slightly more religious, like evangelical whites than a typical Democrat might? Or is that just Some. a pipe dream? So it's worth writing about. It's worth thinking about. And I actually want to ask him about it. Um, He is an anti-prosperity gospel, and I I love him for it. Um, Because that's one of my personal foibles. That bugs me. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing is, white evangelical Christians are still, you know, I want to say probably about, 50% 50% of the electorate in Georgia at this point, 40% anyway. Um, and 80% of them have a theology that is relatively hostile to the theology that Warnock offers. Mm-hmm. Like the, 
the there are liberal white evangelicals. They exist. There are actually a lot of them. Uh, liberal in the sense of politically liberal, not mm-hmm. theologically liberal. The uh, but they're already voting Democrat. Right. The right. evangelical Christian vote in Georgia has been shrinking. Part of its demography, and part of it is the gen- like that that wing of Christianity is losing favor amongst younger people. People are not joining evangelical churches. Mm-hmm. Um, so the folks who remain right. tend to be much more devoted to their, their theological and political philosophy than those who've already left. Um, I don't think Warnock's sort of religious appeal is to white evangelical voters. I think it's to disillusioned former evangelical voters um, who might see something closer to their own political hmm. views in what he speaks. And if you had to guess in the last question, which one of them has a has a better shot, Ossoff or, or Warnock, or do you think that they kind of live or die together? I think in general they live and die together. I think Warnock has a slightly better chance against uh, Loeffler than Ossoff has against Purdue. Um, and the reason in part is because Loeffler's never won a campaign before. Like she's never run for public office before. Mm-hmm. She's got some high negatives going on. Plus there's some vestigial sexism in Georgia politics that is probably a drag on her in particular. The betting money is that Warnock is, is pulling Ossoff along Mm-hmm. I don't. That's not to undersell John Ossoff's appeal. Like I think he's a great candidate, but uh, I think Warnock has the sort of the higher profile right now. Also, just part of the way he's campaigning, like the positivity mm-hmm. of his campaigning, frankly makes him a much more appealing candidate than any of the others. Um, it's part of the reason why I think Loeffler has been trying to scuff him up by associating him with, you know, sort of perceived radical extremist, you know, black preachers. She can't do a, hey, I'm the white person, don't vote for this black person campaign. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can you can put right. Reverend Jeremiah Wright in front of you and let somebody draw their own conclusions. Um, you, you know, it's really frustrating to watch. But I think Warnock is the leader here. And when does early voting start? Early voting starts on the 14th and goes up until uh, the, the Friday before the, uh, the election. Oh, boy. All right. Got to be quite a ride. Uh, George Cheedy, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Deconstructed. Happy to be here. This race is only going to get wilder between now and election day. Rudy Giuliani is now in Georgia crying fraud. On Saturday, Donald Trump is rallying in Georgia for David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. But Republicans down there are deeply worried that he's going to go wildly off script and send this thing further around the bend than it already is. It'll be interesting to watch. That was George Cheedy, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. For more on Georgia's founding as a free state, 
check out Gerald Horn's The Counter-Revolution of 1776. I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.